But today we have a very special guest, Alex Rodriguez. He is the National Chi Alpha Training Director. So big time, great guy. And Alex actually gave his life to Christ on the secular campus at Sam Houston State University in Texas uh, several years ago. And he went through the program. He then uh, gave a year to foreign missions and then came back and he pioneered Chi Alpha in New Mexico. There were no Chi Alphas in New Mexico. And he said, I'm gonna do something about that. And he raised up a team. He went and pioneered there. And now I believe Chi Alpha is on multiple campuses in New Mexico. It's thriving today. But he's such a great guy. The national office had to swoop him up. And then he moved to Springfield, Missouri a couple years ago where he is serving as the national training director, which just means that he is over uh, the interns. He's over kind of all the leadership development on the ground for campuses. So we have several interns with our Chi Alpha. He's like the top dog over that that's kind of organizing how that works. So he is raising up uh, just laborers all over the country. So I'm grateful for him and I'm grateful that he's decided to come. So can you welcome him? Give him like the biggest round of applause you've ever given somebody. Come on. Good morning, St. Church. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. As he said, my name is Alex Rodriguez. You're more than welcome to call me A-Rod. My boss does. And every church I go to, every single pastor usually makes the joke, do you make as much money as Alex Rodriguez? And the answer, of course, is no. What minister makes $250 million for 10-something years? Uh, but you, you laugh and you wave and you, you keep going. You know what I mean? Anyway, it's a pleasure to be with you. How are you doing today? What's your name? David? You can go home and watch football, David? No, maybe. I'm not. It's a whole day of traveling. I think I'm going to land in Virginia tonight at 10 o'clock to do something else, but I'm going to miss my Dallas Cowboys, which doesn't matter because they're a dumpster fire of a team this year anyway, <laughs> so not missing out. Anyway, uh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be with you guys, an undeserved privilege, really. Uh, if you guys could turn in your scripture to Acts chapter 19, verse 11 through 17, we'll get going. Acts chapter 19, 11 through 17. All right. The greatest stories understand that drama does not have to be a reinvented wheel. One of the earliest epics of all time was about a man leading an army of men and dwarves as tall as me and some elves and a few hobbits against wicked orcs who were always dressed for Halloween or if you prefer fall festival and an eye obsessed with an object that contained limitless power. And during this saga, the hero was mentored by an older gentleman with magical abilities, and in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gave his heart to a woman. Meanwhile, the community of Rivendell has no idea a war for the soul of the world is at stake. I think we have a, a slide that shows just a few of these sagas that I'm going to take you through. Yep, there's the first one. Epics reemerged in the 90s with technological advances, but the narrative was similar. A man who looks like Keanu Reeves, who never ages in real life, was leading an army of people against vehement machines obsessed with an object that contained limitless power. During this saga, the hero was mentored by an older gentleman with seemingly magical abilities, and in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gave his heart to a woman. Meanwhile, the community of the Matrix has no idea a war for the soul of the world is at stake. Oh, and the hero dies and he rises again. Epics regained popularity in the 21st century with the story of a boy leading an army of boys and girls and good wizards from a Hogwarts school that looks like tuition is a million dollars a year against evil wizards led by the most evil wizard obsessed with an object that contained limitless power. 
During this saga, the hero is mentored by an older gentleman with magical abilities, and in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gave his heart to a girl. Meanwhile, the community of non-magic folk muggles has no idea a war for the soul of the world is at stake. Oh, and the hero dies, and he rises again. Every great story is the same. The only thing that has changed is the evolution from mid-century wizards to computer wizards to modern-day English wizards and an object of limitless power evolving from a ring to a computer to a wand. All the while, no one knows a war for the soul of the world is at stake except for a, a few brave, unoblivious few. But this narrative did not start with a few inklings from England a few centuries ago. The Bible is a historical story of the Son of Man leading an army of godly people against wicked forces led by a wicked angel, obsessed with the power of an eternal throne he can never have. And during this saga, the Son of Man is mentored by an older father with magical abilities. And in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gives his heart to his bride, the church. Meanwhile, the community of finite humans with infinite souls has no idea a war for the soul of the world is at stake except for a brave and unoblivious few. Oh, and he dies, and he rises again. As Tim Keller has said, the story of Jesus is not another fairy tale. It is the reality to which all the fairy tales point. But we Christians can be guilty, for we find it easier to give our affection and our money and our fandom to believe and make believe, but we can take issue with what the Bible says to believe. Every Christian loves the idea of heaven, yet there is a growing theology believing against the possibility of hell. We speak of guardian angels, but we do not want to speak of demons. We readily believe the Bible's promises, but we readily disbelieve the same Bible's curses. We believe the God of heaven can speak to us, yet denominations have been built insisting the language of heaven cannot speak through us. We believe in the goodness of Jesus. We do not believe the goodness of this Jesus would allow the badness of a devil to roam, so we do not believe in a devil, further proving the old adage, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he does not exist. But a Christian cannot be Christian without believing the unbelievable, including the glorious gospel of Jesus who knew no sin, becoming sin so we can become the righteousness of God, and including supernatural occurrences that take place every time the spiritual world manifests itself in the physical world with souls at stake. Do not be dismayed by the reality of spiritual warfare. Jesus will win. But victory, which has cost him his blood, will cost us something too. This leads us to our text, which took place in real space and time. Acts 19, 11 through 17. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Ephesus had seen evil people do supernatural things. They had never seen a man of God 
do supernatural things. But here arrives the Apostle Paul. His words bring revelation to minds. His handkerchiefs bring healing to bodies. But when this Apostle worked supernatural miracles, it did not result in evil spirits going into people, but coming out of people. Lives were happier. Souls were holier when the man of God did the healings to the magicians. In any business, there are copycats looking for right methods without taking time to develop right convictions. Ephesus was no different. As exorcists began to adopt the apostles' methods for casting out evil, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But for these seven sons of Sceva trying to remove an evil spirit from a person, the demon rebuttaled. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? This means hell has a most wanted list, but that's an entirely different sermon. The demon beat up these men who used the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus. They did not advance heaven. They were being advanced against by hell because their relationship to Jesus was someone else's relationship with Jesus. With heaven battling against hell for the soul of the world, we must ask ourselves, is our relationship to Jesus someone else's relationship to Jesus? To discern this answer, we must investigate three aspects affecting our soul. Number one, is someone else's devotional life being substituted for our own devotion? Number two, do we substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances? And number three, is someone else's responsibility substituted for our own responsibility? Lord, be with us today and help us to be honest and help us to be conscious and help us to feel the presence of God. And whatever we experience with you here, Jesus, oh my God, may we take back for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday until you come back. Amen. When I went to university, I went as a kinesiology major, which is a fancy term for uh, physical education school. I did this to avoid the writing of personal essays as well as to avoid my nemesis of biology class. My foresight failed me, though, because you cannot learn to train the body without learning biology class. But my failsafe, my failsafe, my failsafe was finding a professor who appointed the learning of truth in group work instead of individual assignments. Any fans of group work in here? It's so much better than an individual assignment because you can kind of just coast. <laughs> Is that fair? That's fair. Our professor, however, was no fool. And when it came time for the group to present the truth that they have learned, the illegitimacy of our work began to surface. The professor would call on me and say, Alex, can you tell me what the truth that you learn means? And I would say, well, no, professor, that was not my assignment. I was working on something else, but Jacob worked on that. Jacob can tell you. So she would say, Jacob, can you tell me the truth of what you learn means? And he'd say, well, no, professor, that was not my responsibility in the group. That was Isaac's. Ask Isaac. They say, Isaac, can you tell me the truth of what you learn means? Actually, I cannot do that, professor. I can present my part, but that was not my part. Ask Abraham. That was Abraham's responsibility. College students can be foolish, forgetting that you cannot fool a PhD for the simple reason that they have a PhD, right? Our professor quickly realized an individual's knowledge of the truth was three degrees removed from knowing truth. So she passed the person that actually knew the answers and failed all the other people that did not while moving every test thereafter from collective effort to personal individual essay. That's the worst. <laughs> Believing full well anything other than a first degree knowledge of truth is no knowledge at all. If we study the history of Israel's spiritual life, we discover this is how their devotion to God failed, resulting in the bondage of Egypt. 
God was Abraham's God. To the next generation, he was the God of Abraham and Isaac. To the next generation, he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is radically different than saying God is my God and eerily similar to saying the Jesus whom Paul preaches. The end result was a few Moseses who could climb mountains of fire to be with God and too many Israelites who would create idols with their own hands because someone else's devotion to God was a substitute for their own devotion to God. This is the recipe for failure. We cannot let someone else's devotional life become a substitute for our own devotion. Jesus has prayed, this is eternal life, the life of the ages, to know God, the one true God and his son whom he sent. Jesus has commissioned, go out and make disciples. Jesus has promised, abide in me and I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus has then connected. If we do not spend extravagant time having devotion to Jesus, we will not make disciples like he has commissioned. To not know Jesus is to not have eternal life, and to not know Jesus is to be unable to share eternal life with others. Therefore, we cannot let someone else's devotional life be a substitute for our own devotion. The pastor's devotional life regurgitated to me in a 30-minute monologue from a Sunday morning pulpit does not replace my own devotional life with Jesus. If I only read the Bible when the text goes on a screen, if I only reason with God when the preacher asks a question, if I only worship when the band starts playing, to cease worship when the band stops playing, if I only take my thoughts captive to Jesus at an altar, only to leave Jesus at this same altar, my devotional life is someone else's devotional life. I am not advancing heaven. I am being advanced against by hell. No, I may not be committing sin, but yes, I am omitting daily devotion to Jesus, impeding revelation that leads to repentance, that leads to responsibility, impeding Jesus doing something in me, which is the prerequisite to Jesus doing something through me, impeding experiencing God and growing convictions that no storm can stop and no trial can tame, impeding a demon to say, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, and you, I know. The most terrifying thing for demons is for Christians to behave like there is a God who will draw near if you do. The application is simple. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ask and you will receive. Seek until you find. Knock until the door is open. Write God's word on the tablet of your heart because you read God's word with your greatest commodity of time. Let's not be fooled. The greatest threat to our prayer life is not God being kicked out of courthouses or marriage houses or legislation. The greatest threat to today's prayer life is the small devices that we carry on our self. In 2008, we looked at them for 18 minutes a day, but one recent study says we look at them now for about three and a half hours a day. We tithe our time to our cell phones and our tablets. If we exchange and tithe our time to God, we will become incredibly, incredibly dangerous people for Jesus. Someone else's devotional life cannot be a substitute for my own devotion. I must spend extravagant time with Jesus. Likewise, we must discern, do we substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances? My oldest friendship began in elementary school. I met this friend at sleepovers, which is the boy version of a slumber party. There we would bond over our love for the World Wrestling Federation, now called the World Wrestling Entertainment because of a lawsuit, while discussing who had a crush on who at school because this was 1992. 
Their friendship continued into middle school. We shared a few classes together and would bond over our love for the rapper known as Eminem while discussing who had the most clever AOL instant messenger screen name because this was 1998. The friendship made it to high school where we shared homeroom together and we would bond over our love for the first superhero movie ever, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, while discussing what song we would download later from Napster because this was 2004. The friendship made it to university where we shared a dorm room together and we would bond over being the only 18-year-olds to not smoke although we could and trying to figure out how to use this new texting service on the Motorola Razor phone that everyone had because this was 2006. In college, I met Jesus, and because when you love Jesus, you introduce people to him, I invited this old friend to come to small group, and he came. And I would talk about Jesus in small group, and I would share my thoughts about Jesus with him outside of small group. He would hang out with the rest of the small group. We all played together. We all laughed together. We all cried together while this friend observed. He would buy some of the good Christian books that we talked about. He would listen to some of the powerful Christian sermons we would listen to. He would even have good thoughts to say in these engaging Christian discussions. He was around Christians. Christians were around him. But then one spring break, he went to Mexico and he never came back. At this time, we no longer lived together. I went to his apartment for our habitual hangout. His roommate tells me he left. His bed is there. His furniture is not moved. A few shirts are missing from a closet among many more that stayed. I call him up. He won't answer. I text him. He will not respond. But he's a friend since elementary school. So I call his house line. His mom picks up. I say I'm coming over. I drive to meet him. I ask why he left without saying goodbye. A fair question. He says he did not want to go back to college. I asked, why wouldn't you tell your friends goodbye? He says he did not think about it. I said, we've been friends since we were kids. He implies the friendship had served its purpose. I said, I did not know that friendships had a time limit. I asked, what about the small group? He said it was not his thing. I said, God spoke to you. I heard his truth from your voice in tangible, real sentences. He said, you're supposed to have something to say in small groups, so I did. I said, the Bible says God has a plan for your life. He said he does not want to have a plan. I said, I do not appreciate how after all this time you just left. He said, I'm sorry. He just not wanted to go to college anymore. So I leave his house. I would still call, but he would not answer until I did not call anymore. I would still text, but he would not respond until I did not text anymore. I would reach out on Facebook, but he would not reach back until I did not reach out anymore. Meanwhile... I cannot deny a lifetime of memories, and certainly there were seasons where community was real, but with such an abrupt end, I have wondered, he was my friend, but was I only his acquaintance? As we look at the broader community of Chi Alpha in church, we cannot deny this same story happens over and over and over, same scenario, different characters. Do we let real friendship be substituted for temporary acquaintances? Do we consume community that everyone else creates? Do we take honor without giving it? Do we encourage transparency while not being transparent ourselves? Do we hear confession of sins without admitting our own sins? Do we value personal feelings over someone else's future? Do we let someone else's love for another be a substitute for our own love for another? Do we amen truth without believing it? Do we look the part of a Christian without having Christ be a part of us? 
James says to confess sins and pray for each other so that we may be healed. The Apostle Paul said to carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus says, no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for a friend. Real Christian friendship involves mutual action, mutual responsibility, mutual understanding and purpose and forgiveness and unselfishness. But too often... Christian lifestyles are merely conformity lasting a season instead of conviction lasting a lifetime because we have never honestly met God, never honestly met with each other, never honestly met with ourselves. And when real friendship becomes substituted for temporary acquaintances, as soon as the opportunity to be a part of this community is gone, I am gone. This is when godly books that collected dust are traded in to collect money. This is when dating becomes purely about a body disconnected from a soul. This is when tongues reveal they were trained but never tamed. This is when greed holds on to paper as missionary asks pass by. This is when I will pray about it as proved to be rhetoric that never graduated into reality. This is when the ends of the earth become out of sight, out of mind. This is when the gospel becomes forgotten. This is when church involvement becomes fringe. This is when Jesus is revealed not to be someone's friend, savior, bridegroom, and king, but an accessory to use as desired. When this happens, we're not advancing hell. We're not advancing heaven. We're being advanced against by hell. Now, there may be three reasons we let real friendships become substituted for temporary acquaintances. For one, we believe if you never have to love, you never have to lose. But we forget the rebuttal of Mr. C.S. Lewis. The only place to be free from heartache is a casket. But in that casket, undisturbed by real friendships, your heart will grow old and cold as you turn into something less than who you are. For two, we might not believe that we have anything to offer, so we do not offer ourselves to community. But we forget the rebuttal of Genesis 1. We were made in the image of God, which means every individual is a finite expression of the infinite God. You show the world something of God that no one has ever seen before, and nor will anyone see after. To lose you then is to lose a revelation of Jesus that only you can bring. For three... We do not believe anyone who claims allegiance to heaven could love us if they know just how dark our soul is. But we forget the rebuttal of Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If there is nothing that we did to earn the love of God, there is nothing we can do to earn the love of God's people. The application is simple. Honestly meet God. Honestly meet with each other. And honestly meet ourselves. We cannot substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances. Likewise, someone else's responsibility cannot be a substitute for your responsibility. When I first joined Sam Houston State Chi Alpha back in Nowhere, Texas, we were reaching around 250 students for Christ. By the time I was a junior, we had been reaching 500 students for Jesus for the past two years. This was considered the largest Chi Alpha in the nation, 500 students being reconciled to Jesus. But our pastors operated with the conviction that good enough is never good enough. And the belief making disciples of all nations always means we must find ways to reach more. Where we then began to examine why this Chi Alpha was stuck at 500. They reasoned it was easy for irresponsibility to be hidden in an audience of 500 students. A small group leader who found, fed, and fought for zero could go unnoticed amongst their more responsible peers who found, fed, and fought for many. So how do you resolve this dilemma? 
they decided to split the largest kayak in the nation into three separate groups operating independently on different nights with different staff with different student leaders. The belief was, if it's easy to be irresponsible in a group of 500, it's much more noticeable to be irresponsible in a group of 100, and shame is just as much a motivator as glory. <laughs> it's true. When our first leadership retreat ended and this change was announced, the campus pastor for our group, Jason Bell, took all the leaders of our group to the Chi Alpha house. He asked the 20 small group leaders to sit on the front row of the house. The venue held 250 seats. He then asked all of us in the front row to look behind us at the 230 empty seats around. And after a minute of silence that lasts an eternity, Jason spoke and he said, if you do not go out and make disciples, every night will feel as empty as this one. It was then the weight of responsibility fell on our shoulders. If we do nothing, then nothing will change. Someone else's responsibility cannot be a substitute for your own responsibility. When this happens, churches regress, souls are not one, kyalphas fall apart, we are not advancing heaven, we are being advanced against by hell. This is where biblical literacy can get the best of us. We trust it's better to wait for audible words and visual visions than to obey the Bible's actual verses. Jesus already prophesied in Matthew 24, the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth as a witness, and then the end will come. The heroes of the Bible have already demonstrated they were on mission because they assumed making disciples was a default green light. And if audible words and visual visions did have to be sent, it was to redirect their efforts, not to begin them. This is where spirituality without sobriety can get the best of us. We tell people we have to pray about going on mission trips to destinations, but vacations to these same destinations require no divinity, just credit cards. All the while, Isaiah the prophet, without knowing budgets or time frames or location or hearing from God, simply said, send me, I will go. As Scott Martin has said, this is how Mormons give two years while Christians give mission trip excuses. This is why Christians prefer to sing lies instead of say them. Jesus is Lord until he asks the uncomfortable. Then we bring up subjective calls to disobey his objective commands. This is where calling can get the best of us. The Bible word being used in the modern day had one meaning then, which has one meaning now. Calling simply means invited. God is going to make disciples of all nations. You're invited to go with him. Jesus will be confessed by every tribe and tongue. You're invited to introduce him. This is where family gets the best of us. We want missionaries for God's kingdom, but they cannot be our own children. We happily sing songs about God sending his son to a lost world to save us, but we will protest ministries and impede donations if someone is asking to send our sons and daughters to a lost world to save it. We can happily have the gospel at the cost of God's family, but no one can have the gospel at the cost of our family. All the while, Jesus preaches in Matthew 10, if you love me, if you love family more than me, you are unworthy of me. Meaning God is God and we are not. God is God and family is not. This is where the devil gets the best of us. We insist we must feel like, we insist we must feel like it before we are responsible for God, believing that we have to be true to ourselves with our feelings, forgetting all the while Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Self-denial, not self-fulfillment, is the secret to a Christian's happy life. I hope this is clear. It is not the pastor's job to grow this church. It is not the director's job to grow Chi Alpha. 
It is everyone's job, especially yours. But to advance heaven, our relationship to Jesus cannot be someone else's relationship to Jesus. As we throw off the sin that we love more than Jesus and the weight that we think about more than Jesus and look to Jesus, we discover he is simply asking us to do what he has done and is doing. Jesus did not let anyone be a substitute for his own devotion or community or responsibility. He grew in wisdom and stature, memorized the law and the prophets. Now he prays for us night and day at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has his own devotional life. Hallelujah. Jesus went out and found the disciples. He took them fishing and hunting. He was transparent and vulnerable. Jesus first called them friends. Jesus did not delegate the atonement. He grabbed a cross with joy. He drank the cup of suffering so we could drink the cup of life. He took the punishment of sin so we could happily enjoy the cup of, of freedom. He died so we can live. He rose himself from the grave so we can be helped by God. Jesus did not run away from responsibility. And when we have real devotion and real community and real responsibility, we do not have someone else's Jesus. We have him personally. And that personal relationship with Jesus is a dangerous thing for the advancement of God's kingdom. I'll invite the worship band back up as we bring this to a close. I, uh, they're going to play and I invite you to meet with God in your seat. Pray to Jesus where we are about whether our relationship with Jesus is someone else's relationship with Jesus. This is an honest prayer. Can we pray about initiating more real devotion in our lives after we check in and see how is our devotion actually going? Can we ask and investigate whether we're consuming community or helping create it and ask God for the courage to help create more of it? And are we partaking in more real responsibility which will affect the lives and the souls of other people? In other words, what Jesus is doing in me through responsibility am I letting Jesus do through me? Does that make sense? Real devotion, real community, real responsibility. Are these things alive and well in our souls? Or is someone else's Jesus being a substitute for our relationship with Jesus? I'll lead us off in prayer. And I want you to spend some time reflecting with the Lord of heaven and earth to see where you are, to see who you are and where Jesus would have you go and be next. Jesus, we love you. If eternal life is to know God, the one true God, and your Son whom you sent, then help us to know you in every aspect of our soul. May not one aspect of our soul be uncovered in intimacy and experience with you, Jesus. May the words in these Bible books, may they bleed into our lives, Jesus. May we consume them, may we digest them, may they consume us. May our thoughts be captive to the obedience of Jesus. May we dwell and think on what is good and holy and worthy and noble, praiseworthy and of good report. Lord Jesus, may we love one another, may we forgive one another, may we honor one another, may we make disciples of one another. God, may we make disciples of all nations. May we be witnesses to the ends of the earth. These things that we have heard in the presence of many witnesses, may we entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. 
May we be a royal priesthood that connects heaven to earth and earth to heaven, which is going to require a demonstration of the gospel. Without a doubt, we need holy lives, but it's also going to require a declaration of the gospel. We need to be audible about Jesus. So would you help us, Lord, to inspect our souls and see if our devotion is really just someone else's devotion? And if it is, would you help us to abide in you? And help us to see if we substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances. And if we do, then would you help us to create community, not just consume it? And Lord, would you help us to see if we're letting someone else's responsibility be a substitute for our own responsibility? And if we are, then my God, what you do in us, may you do through us. In Jesus' name.